Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is... is- the Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of The Science of Motherhood. I am your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is wrapping up her maternity leave with her beautiful baby boy, her second born. And we are the dynamic duo, the co-founders of the mother-loving postpartum doula business, Fill Your Cup in Melbourne and Hobart now in Australia, where we provide in-home care to sleep-deprived and hungry mamas, <laughs> essentially. So we have a wonderful team of doulas. Shout out to Amanda and Georgie and Caitlin and Samara and Kate. And they are just an amazing team of women to work with. And collectively, we provide evidence-based postpartum care to all you mamas who, let's be honest, we weren't meant to raise our children by ourselves. And whilst um, we've kind of lost our way a little bit with our nuclear families, we are there to help you along the way by providing an opportunity for you to rest and replenish all of your lost nutrients that our lovely babies suck the life out of us in those first kind of nine to 10 months whilst they're cooking. And the core of our business is around food. So both Mika and I have a PhD in biochemistry. And so we are extremely passionate about prenatal pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. And so As I said, the core of our business is food. We have curated a wonderful FYC mama menu that gets served every week to you in your home, freshly cooked as part of our in-home sessions. And that is definitely one of the things that all of our clients have said they just absolutely love. It's an opportunity where you can have a nice hot lunch in that session. And because Mika and I are both European backgrounds, we have no idea how to cook for one. We just don't do it. So all of our meals are huge servings. So there's enough for two days at least. So yes, if anyone is interested and needs some care and support and comfort food, and you've just had a new bubs or you've got one cooking and you're not too sure about how you're going to navigate motherhood or you don't have a village around you, some of the top top categories, I guess, of our FYC mamas are those who really value their health or have struggled with health concerns during their pregnancy, like low iron levels, gestational diabetes and things like that and want to set off on the right foot in motherhood and other categories are those people who have small businesses themselves. So both mama or their partner don't have the luxury of taking a lot of time off. So they don't have parental leave. And so they need that extra support person. And of course, Because of COVID, a lot of our family and friends either aren't able to travel to be with us um, right now to help you during the newborn days. And so a lot, a lot of our FYC mamas are those who have family and friends interstate or overseas. So if you are one of those mamas, please feel free to reach out to us so we can help you into a really smooth transition into motherhood because we were not meant to do this alone. So without further ado, episode 30. Wow. 
And this, yeah, this started off as just this tiny little podcast. We've had over six and a half thousand downloads now across our podcast episodes. It has turned into a beast of its own. I know that might not sound a lot to some people, but it might sound a lot to other people. But it is something that Mika and I both wanted to do to create a platform where we could provide an opportunity for you to connect with researchers or experts or specialists in particular fields to bring the knowledge to you straight away. Because we know as scientists that to go from bench to bedside, typically that information takes about 10 to 15 years and that's not good enough. It just is not good enough. So we all know that knowledge is power and We want to make sure that all the mummers are empowered with the best knowledge that they can possibly be equipped with. So today I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing a beautiful mama, Hannah Clark from Kin Postpartum. She is a certified sleep specialist based here in Tasmania where I reside now And Hannah's got a really interesting story. So, you know, it's interesting, but it's very common. She had her firstborn and he just was not sleeping. He was waking hourly every single night and she just was so distressed about what was going on and how she was going to help him And she just turned to get some help and it really didn't resonate with her. You know, that conventional kind of space soothing, controlled crying, it was not gentle enough for her or nor responsive and she found it, as I said, quite distressing. So she kind of started her journey on working out what it is that her baby needed and she has now trained with the lovely Isla Grace through the baby-led sleep and well-being specialist. And so she's now made it her mission to empower other parents like you to trust your instincts and be what she calls the responsive boss that you are. And I love that because Sometimes we get caught up in this world with schedules and programs and, you know, this book told me that this is what I should be doing at, you know, 9am and I'm going to do this at 11am and this at 1pm. And what we sometimes lose sight of is the fact that our babies are, in fact, humans, just like us. And we can honestly say that we have days where we're a bit more tired or we're less hungry or, you know, something's happened to perhaps upset us and therefore fed into the behaviour that happens, you know, an hour later or two hours later or a day later or something like that. And so what Hannah has explored and she integrates into her practice is a truly honest and gentle approach with no sleep training in sight. And I love that. And she also practices where the children are given particular practices where it's developmentally appropriate for their age and stage. And I think that's something that's really important that we don't think about also. Age and stage. So we get caught up in these things where my baby's six months old and therefore they should be able to do something. And that's not necessarily the case at all. So she looks for things like age and stage and also respects your child's temperament and development in order to foster their mental health as well. So Hannah and I spoke at length around different strategies around infant sleep. We looked at 
the physiology of it all. And it was just such a beautifully insightful conversation. And I think really complements our other episode with Dr. Craig Kirschenbaum in episode 28. If you haven't listened to that, that's more from a kind of neuroscientist perspective around sleep. And I think collectively these two episodes are going to be a really, really valuable tool for parents if you're having issues with sleep. And I, you will hear in this episode about my peaks and troughs, shall we say, when it comes to tackling infant sleep with my daughter. So without further ado, here is Hannah. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Hannah from Tassie, which I, I'm i going to talk about how we actually met because I think that's a very interesting that is a, story. And it's and very Tassie as well. It is so Tassie. Now, let me get this. I'm going to get this right. I'm trying to remember. I think I had just moved here. We were coming out of quarantine, I think it was, and I was trying to connect with all the lovely people in the birth and mother care space in Tassie. Yeah. I had essentially dropped into your DMs on Instagram and I'm like, hi, I'm <laughs> Renee, can we be friends? Because, you know, you're a sleep specialist, you see lovely little bubbers and mamas all the time, and you were like, yeah, sure, but we've just come home from hospital, yeah. it was. Yes, it was. Oh, that was awful. Yeah, six weeks old um, and uh, my little baby girl, Bobby, she had meningitis. Mm. So that was not not a very good time, but we got no. through it. It's not, and and I think I was like, First of all, I was kind of thrown back with, oh, my God, that is not a situation that you want to be in. Yeah. And then I was like, please let me make you food, no questions asked. And you came back with, I'm pretty sure, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm I'm going to say yes because I know how hard it is being the second time around. This is your second child. Yeah. And... First time, you know, child Hannah would have been like, oh, no, I'm okay. I'm a martyr mum. Like we always keep telling our mums, don't be a martyr, don't be a martyr. And then I made the food for you and I said, where do you live? And we're not going to say the suburb. We don't need to say the suburb. But serendipitously it turned out that you lived 200 metres away from a very, very special place for me. That's right. I'm just remembering that part of it now as well. (laughs) And I actually spoke about this in my birth story. And the reason I did was because that very special place was my husband's nan's house and his mum grew up in that house and so it is a very it's a very nostalgic place for him he had a lot of wonderful memories there as well because he used to go and visit his nan and in fact it was the place that he took me to propose to me and he did it in the field where there was all these daffodils And the reason I spoke Mm. about it in my birth story was because I was, as people may remember, episode three, if you haven't listened to it already, but I had completely lost my mind being on mat leave and I checked myself in for an elective caesarean because I was spiralling really quickly and I was panicked and I turned up to the hospital that morning to have my C-section and I was just trying to get like my sense of calm And I remember sitting in the reception area while Grayson went to the desk and checked me in because I could, like, I was only 38, five by that stage and I could hardly walk. (laughs) She was very engaged for a long time. My baby was a big baby. And I looked at the TV screen 
and there was all these daffodils on the TV screen and they were talking about how it was daffodil day. And daffodils have always represented a very happy, harmonious, like beautiful kind of moment in time for me. And as soon as I I realised, oh, my God, it's daffodil day, I just completely mellowed and I was like, everything is where it needs to be and everything is going to be okay. It was just like a sign from the universe and I'm so, I'm a scientist, I'm a hardcore science nut, but I still, I still have this thing in my mind where things happen and people cross paths and it just is, it's meant to be. And the fact that you live 200 Mm. metres away and I'd contacted a lot of people from Tassie (laughs) and I was like, I'm going to bring you food and you were like, oh, I live here. And I was like, what? Um, I kind of feel like we were meant to cross paths. So I just wanted to share that with everyone, that you're not just some random person that I contacted and I'm dealing food too. (laughs) (laughs) And it was beautiful food too and it was so appreciated. Yeah, I think the cookies went down really well because, yeah, you were jumping in the car. I remember that. That's right. Okay, so after I've just shared my um, life story with everyone, Let's knuckle down to what you're here for, Hannah, because we've been riffing online about sleep. Everyone knows I'm very passionate about this particular subject because it has caused me a lot and lot of anxiety in the past. As it does with so many parents. I know. It's just this thing where uh, I feel like the industry is like, I would have to say a billion dollar industry. I don't know. Like fact check me people on this. But, you know, if we're looking at snooze and cots and, and, you know, all those swaddles and what are those ones that look like a leaf that kind of like bounce around that you've got on the floor? Oh, I know the one, yeah. Those things. It's just a billion dollar industry. I find that it's... All these products and gadgets and everything are great. They're tools in the toolkit, okay? That's what I kind of look at them as. I'd love your opinion on it. But I seem it seems to me that the industry is making money and the only way that they can do that is actually taking a baby away from its mother. Mm, and that doesn't that doesn't seem way. right to me, right? Yeah. Like I- it, it it just it, it's it's a bizarre concept. So the thing I love about you is the fact that you are very passionate about, I guess, a philosophy called baby-led sleep approach, That's which it. seems to me like it's at the other end of the spectrum of crying it out and that walk-in, walk-out. And um, I know you posted the other day about the patting of the mattress. Oh, and so many people hadn't heard of it, but it's. I think in Australia, it's a super common, super common thing to just. Yeah, I got told to do that. I got yeah. told to do that. So let's talk about baby-led sleep approach. How does that differentiate from something like crying it out or like that kind of go in, go out thing, and patting the mattress and and that type yeah. of method? Yeah, sure. So. The sleep industry, it's not regulated. Anyone can call themselves a sleep specialist or a sleep consultant. Most sleep consultants use sleep training methods, i.e. separation-based behaviour modification techniques. Mm -hmm. They're essentially methods that are used to extinguish unwanted behaviours versus looking at sleep for what it is, something that is an innate function and it doesn't need to be taught, and I don't think it really takes the attachment relationship into consideration. I mean, that just, it speaks volumes to me because if it was something that was taught, then surely, you know, your child would never fall asleep in a pram. They oh, would never fall asleep okay. in the car. It'd be like, no, we need these like specialised conditions where like everything has to be like jet black. You need to put the white noise on. Like <laughs> I remember and like, I was one of those nutball parents and this is why this is such a sensitive topic for me because I got told when Eva was, uh, how old was she? 
she was just three months and she was doing catnapping and I was like, that's cool, whatever, like, you know, she's just doing her thing and I was like feeding on demand, we were sleeping on demand, it was all fine. And then I got told by someone in my mother's group, oh, no, they shouldn't be catnapping. And I was like, what? And she was like, oh, no, 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 you're going to want to fix that. And I was like, what do you mean? Like the, and I, I was like, oh my god, there's something wrong with my child. That's it, and it, it feeds into the doubt. Yes, someone tells me that there's something wrong, and you're thinking, oh, I was really happy, kind of going along, doing what I was doing yeah. there, but now I'm, what, what's, what have I done? Yeah, yes, one hundred percent. And so, how is your philosophy different? So when you when you consult with someone and you kind of you know you're working with a client, what are the types of approaches that you're taking when you know you're you're in that consult? Yeah. So when I look at sleep, I look at it from a holistic perspective, and from the idea that sleep is a byproduct of the environment, and there are so many things that affect sleep, and I think it's a really good indicator of health overall. Mm -hmm. So emotion, attachment, your routine. We look at sleep space. Temperament is a huge one that, again, I don't think a lot of your mainstream sleep consultants maybe think about. Mm -hmm. Nutrition, periods of development, illness and teething, mental health of the parent and the baby, Mm -hmm. your birth experience, your postpartum period, any underlying red flags. So there's a whole heap of things that feed into sleep. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's not as black and white as you know, have a longer wake window and put them down to self-soothe. Done. That's your problem. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what I was told. (laughs) No, I still remember. So we had these blinds in our house and they had, they were like, uh, like the wooden, the wooden blinds with the slats and everything. And there was these, obviously they had to drill tiny little holes into the wooden slats and obviously weave through the cord to be able to hang them and Mm. they were closed and (laughs) the sleep consultant came in and she was like, see that, see all those little holes. They are equivalent to like a big disco light for her. And I was like, I was like, what really? And she was like, yep. And see the air conditioner light and see her light on her baby monitor, you know, the like the little power light or whatever. Yeah. She was like, yeah, yeah. you're going to have to go get some blue tack and you're going to have to blue tack all of that up because that is like a big beacon for her. And I was like, oh, my God, no wonder she's not sleeping well. But yeah. she actually was. She was doing exactly what she was supposed to be doing, which was catnapping. Oh, and, and it was just it. it was months and months of sleep turmoil And it was, oh, my God. And it set me into this huge anxiety, like, spiral. Mm. Mm. And that is such a common thing that I hear when I'm working with parents is just the the anxiety that comes along with having a baby who they think should be sleeping a certain way and they're not sleeping that way. Yeah. So baby-led sleep, essentially, it's the place between sleep train or don't complain. So it's between fix the behaviour, change the behaviour, or just write it out and don't complain. Yeah. So it really gets to the root cause of any barriers that get in the way of sleep, as as is the best that their sleep can be at that particular point of their development. Yeah. Because it's always changing. Sleep is not linear. As we know, the first three years, it's very up and down. 100%. Oh, my God. Yeah. We're four yeah. and a half years in, and I, f- I only just feel like we're getting, like, a sense of, sleeping in her own bed like she still comes into our room I would probably say 80% of the time yeah yeah but yeah it's that understanding that it's in a constant state of flux yeah and that that in itself is so normal Mm -hmm. and it's it's adjusting expectations yes and, and the education around what is normal sleep and what it should actually look like yeah Okay, I mean, so, how often do you how often do you see something on TV or or the movies and it's a baby sleeping in a cot, <laughs> like a week old, and you know you don't hear from them the whole time and they just put them down and that's it. Yeah, and no that's chance. What you see and that's in your mind when you're having babies. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. let's talk about that. So let's talk about like sleep windows and like natural infant physiology. What should what what should 
what's the normal, if I'm, I'm doing like air quotes, what's the normal range for a baby and what expectations are? It's so different. Yeah. It really is. There's such a huge window. And the thing with wake windows, and I guess the definition of a wake window should probably be discussed because I've seen so many really funny things on the internet about what a wake window is. Yeah. One of them is, you know, when they're actually out of the cot as opposed to when they're awake or when they've stopped crying once they've woken up. But essentially a wake window is the time from when a baby is awake to the time that they then go to sleep. Okay. It's the time that they are physically awake, not when they're out of the cot. They might have been in the cot for 45 minutes. That's (laughs) what we got told. We got told Um, the wake window starts when you take them out of the cot. And I'm like, but she's actually awake like already yeah. like it just but when you're so sleep deprived like as a mum like my eyeballs were falling out of my head like I was just like cooked and um, you want someone to come in and tell you as yes well. you want to give you the answer because you can't get there yourself and yeah. you just want someone to kind of come in and save you from the exactly exactly and in hindsight what I really needed was for someone to support me yeah. not change my child's behaviour. Yeah. That was like I should have hired a doula. I didn't know what a postpartum doula was at that stage. But that's what I should have done because I should have gone, it's totally normal for my baby to sleep in 45-minute increments, you uh-huh. know, and she uh-huh. was sleeping well through the night. And then it was interesting because as soon as I started to mess around with her day sleeps, did she really start? not kind of sleeping very well overnight and yeah. we got told oh that'll yep that that's what happens that you know that'll sort itself out and it's so interesting because we did do I guess you would call it sleep training we did the one minute in one minute out one minute in one minute out and yeah. it was just like it broke me mm. so many times and I and then you know what in the end, we co-slept and guess guess which out of the two actually required us to not to be awake for so long during the middle of the night? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they do say that bed-sharing parents do get more sleep overall. Yes. Yeah. It just makes sense. Yeah, it does. Okay, so what do you think about sleep windows? Do you think, because I've seen the tables, I've been given the tables of like yeah, this is yeah. the sleep window. But, but- They're not based in any evidence, you know, the term of a wake window. You've got, if you think about sleep as a 24-hour window and across this whole 24-hour period, you have a baby who needs a certain amount of sleep in that time. Yeah. And then you think of naps as taking the edge off the pressure. Yeah. So that you get to bedtime and then they can sleep to really bring the pressure down. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is so dependent on every baby and their sleep total so for example and this is taken from the national sleep foundation um, so for newborns in a 24-hour period on average it's 14 to 17 hours of sleep in a 24-hour period but some could be 11 and some could be 19 yeah so then if you were to give someone a strict routine how does that account for for the outliers yeah you know it's a bell curve we know that people are on either end of it 100 percent and I actually really wish that that type of information was provided to all parents at like all birthing classes because there is just this ridiculous expectation. I mean, they're so focused on you need to learn how to wrap your child like a Mexican burrito, which honestly is not going to help anyone. What's everyone worried about? Sleep. (laughs) <laughs> like the like the number the top two things are feeding and sleep. I know this. We've surveyed like hundreds of families on this. Yeah. And so I don't understand why this is not out there in the community that this is the bell curve. Yeah. And your child will fit somewhere in there and they could be all the way down here or all the way down there. That's it. And the best indicator of where your child's going to fit is is them. Read, read your baby, yep. not, not the books, as they say. 
yeah. And I know that wake windows can be helpful for some people whose babies don't give them very clear tide cues yeah. until they're well past it. And so for some people, yes, that's a great thing to um, to have. And it's a good place to start as well. So it gives you a rough idea and then you can kind of go up, you can go down, you can move around. Yeah. You know, it gives you a starting place. But definitely not gospel and don't beat yourself up if your baby's, you know, 15 minutes over what they're meant to be awake for and they're not, they don't want to go down. And I think a lot of the, strict, the sleep troubles that I see so often are parents trying to put kids down that just aren't tired. Yes. And they just need to be awake for a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I ran into that issue because, yeah, we were given this guide, which apparently was going to like solve all my life problems. And I I distinctly remember this one time where I was like, oh my God, I keep putting her down at this time because that's what the thing told me to do. And I was talking to other mums in my local community and they're like, just give it 10 minutes and then try again. And I was like, what? And they're like, just give it 10 minutes. She'll mm-hmm. probably be tired in 10 more minutes. And I was like, "Yeah, oh, okay. And I did it that day and she went like down straight away. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like why am, I, why am I following this ridiculous guide? Yeah. It's just crazy. Now, it this, doesn't need to be a battle. Exactly, exactly. Now this brings me to something that I saw on your Instagram account. You made this beautiful Venn diagram and because this is audio, I'm going to explain it to people. It has three circles and as I said, it's a Venn diagram so they do overlap. The middle one is sleep. So this is what you can kind of achieve, which is sleep. On the left-hand side is a yellow circle. And, and the title is Not in Conscious Control. And it lists when they fall asleep, how long it takes to fall asleep, how long they sleep for, and if they wake up. And then on the other side, we've got in conscious control, where they sleep, wind down routine, what time you go into the sleep space, and work on sleep barriers. Oh, Hannah. I love this so much because (laughs) I, as I said, I suffered from postnatal anxiety and I would probably say 80% of it came from this whole sleep concept for Mm -hmm. me. And I'm an A-type personality. I wanted to be able to control like everything that we went on and it took me a long time to work out that my child was not a robot and that like you know if I put her down at 9 15 which is what the guide told me to that she if she didn't fall asleep straight away I was like oh my god there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with my child so I love the fact that you have clearly outlined these are all the things that you can control Renee and these are all the things that you cannot and I wish I wish I knew all of this information prior. (laughs) This is what hindsight is. (laughs) Can you kind of walk us through? So things that you are not in conscious control of and why, if you can explain, why are we not in control of when they fall asleep, how long it takes to fall asleep, how long they sleep for, and if they wake up? Why are those, tell me, why do we, why can we not control those things in contrast Um, to what? the sleep industry is telling us that we can actually can do that. See, I love that the sleep industry tries to tell you that you can control it because then they create something. Exactly. Oh, oh, your child can't do that? Here's something for $500. Yes. <laughs> That's it. You should be able to, you know, put them down at this exact time and they fall asleep. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, a, it's an innate function. Yeah. You, you know, you can't control it. It happens. There's a whole cocktail of hormones that go on. You need to be feeling relaxed and safe. It's the most vulnerable state to go into sleep. So there's a whole heap of things that kind of work together to actually get you to that state. And you can, as, as it says, you can control some of them. But at the end of the day, you know, we can't control everything. Mm. And I think, as you said, with um, wanting to control things and having the postpartum anxiety, uh, it's such a common thing that I hear is people not having control in other areas. Yeah. And sleep seems like the thing that you can get control of. And so that's the thing that you focus on because yeah. it gives you, you know, a bit of routine to your day. Yes. Would you agree? Yes. The yeah. routine. Yeah. I was fed that a lot. As long as, as soon as you get them into a routine, you'll be fine. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I want to be fine. 
So I need to achieve this routine concept. And I mean, routines in and of themselves, I am a fan of routine. I think it's really good. Kids thrive on predictability and routine. I guess it's more you strict schedules. Yes. That, you know, can have that problem. Yeah. But a routine that's got a bit of a flow in your day, you know, you've got one thing that, you know, happens before the next thing. Yes. Yes, exactly. I'd love to know about your recommended wind-down routine. Is there something that you have a set of tools? Because I, even to this day, Eva's four and a half, we do the same wind-down routine. It's the same, as you say, it may not be the exact same time, but it's the exact same order of things that happen and for her it just works very smoothly and it's less issues at at bedtime so what's your recommendation for for new for newborns let's say or you know around that four six months mark yeah look I just think keeping it consistent and short and sweet is always good it doesn't need to be this huge elaborate long thing that takes hours and hours mm-hmm. you could just have you know two or three things in a row and that'll look different for every family it depends what you know is enjoyable for you and what you want to do together a bath is nice but a lot of people don't like bathing their kids every day we certainly don't I think ours gets one once a week or something yeah the, the next one so a bath is good putting them into a sleep sack mm-hmm. into their pajamas is always a good thing if you're using white noise which I don't mind um, I do quite love white noise yeah that's always a good thing as well but just two or three things pick them if you want to add in some sleep associations you can do that right from the start so you know if you feed to sleep you can also do a little bump pad as you go you can do a little rock if you wanted to do that but just keep it consistent whatever it is and keep it enjoyable you don't want something in there that you're resenting and you're hating doing it every night because that will feed through yeah and yeah bubbers know they know they do they they totally do I love the fact that you've touched on feeding to sleep because that I think is another huge myth and misconception around you need to put your baby down, not asleep, but drowsy. What the F is that? Okay. (laughs) I was like, you know what that, do you know what that is akin to? That is akin to trying to find the sweet spot when you're opening an avocado. Okay. It's that moment in time where you're like, it is this tiny window and is it even possible? to 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 get that I've tried I tried that so many times and then I just gave up I was like yeah I think we're just gonna feed to sleep for like ever (laughs) I think feeding to sleep is a bit of a superpower if it feels good to you if you enjoy it I'm not saying you have to do it at all but from a biological standpoint we're designed to do it you know feeding makes a baby sleepy hormones in the milk makes a a mum sleepy the sucking relaxes everyone so you know we are designed to feed to sleep exactly Um, and fighting it can be so hard how hard is it to wake a baby who's fallen asleep at the breast to then try and put them down awake yeah and doesn't end well often I just kind of think back to like if I was on the couch and I was tired and I'm like drifting off asleep like this and if my husband shook me and was like, hey, wake up, hey, wake up. I'd be like, what the hell? Let me go to sleep. Like, but all of a sudden it's okay for us to do that with our kids. Like it just Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to me, like logically at all. It's madness. And some babies won't. Um, I I mean, I know quite a few people whose babies just don't like doing it and that's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Not one, one way that things have to be done and babies are so different. But if you do have a baby and you're listening to this and they are falling asleep at the breast and you've got in the back of your mind, oh, God, no, 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 this is not good. It's not the way it's meant to happen. I'm setting up bad habits that I'll never be able to crack. <laughs> if you enjoy it, do it. Yeah. If it that's works for you. Yeah. That's what works. we tell our mamas as well. It's like you keep doing what works for you until it doesn't. That's exactly it. And that is that's the time that you make the conscious decision yeah. to experiment with something else. Yeah. And and that's that's all that's all like welcome to parenthood. 
That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Welcome to the rest of the 18 years that they're at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, these days I think they're going to be here till they're like 35. My goodness. Yeah. Oh, look, I wouldn't mind that. I don't <laughs> want Ted to ever leave. <laughs> I say that now. He's three. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, oh, you wait. <laughs> He's going to find this podcast and be like, well, Mum, you said. <laughs> Hannah, I want to talk about the R word, regressions, which I hate. We call them progressions because regression says that people are going backwards instead of forwards. That's it. it. Talk us through because I still recall that ridiculous app, the Leap app. What is it? The Wonder. Oh, Wonder Weeks. Wonder Weeks. Yeah. Talk about. Like, again, if you are a type A personality, if you are prone to anxiety, if you have anxiety, newsflash, do not download that app, okay? Because if you're like me, you li- I was, like, planning things out in my social calendar around the Wonder Weeks. Yeah. And that's the... That's the harm in it, I think. And exactly. I think there are some people who really like to be prepared and it doesn't give them anxiety. But so many people yeah. I speak to, it just sets them up to be worrying about something that may or may, may. not Exactly. Happen. Yeah, exactly. not every baby gets hit by progressions. And, I mean, there's only one technical progression anyway, which is technically what they call the four-month one. Yeah is the common time, but that's just, it's a change in sleep architecture and it can happen anywhere between two and six months. Some babies you'll notice a difference and some you don't. So it's not a given that you're going to run into trouble. So you've got your four-month progression, we'll call it, yep. is your, your only technical one. And then every other one after that, disruptions in sleep are related to development. Exactly. Yeah. So what's that what is that change in sleep architecture around that four month mark? What's going on there? Why is it the causing newborns, such a ruckus to yeah. our lives? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So newborns have two sleep stages per cycle mm-hmm. and then somewhere in between that two to six month mark, they turn into four stages per sleep cycle, which is closer to an adult sleep cycle. And while the brain's getting used to that change, it can cause a bit of disruption. They have a change in the amount of time that they're in REM sleep for. And so that's why you start to see them waking a little bit more often because they have more. And it can be really tough for some babies and some babies you just don't see it and they will cruise through. Mm. But like anything, it'll pass, which is I hate saying it'll pass to parents because it doesn't help when you're in it and you want something tangible that can really help. But, you know, even if you do nothing with sleep, it gets better. Even if you did nothing for four years, you know, your baby will sleep. That would cost the sleep industry a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) If we shouted that from the rooftops, you said what? (laughs) (laughs) That whole narrative that you have to... I was reading something this morning, a a comment that someone had put up saying, you know, I'm doing the responsive sleep route at the moment and they were told, oh, you know, that's good for now, but at some point you're going to have to sleep train otherwise they will not learn how to sleep independently. Oh, wow. And it's it's the whole messaging that sleep training is a given and that you will have to do it at some point. Mm. But I think so many parents don't know that there is an option. You do not have to do anything that you don't want to do. Mm. And if sleep training fits with your values and that's what you want to do with your child, absolutely wonderful. That's, you know, not an issue. But for the parents who don't want to but feel like they have to because it's inevitable and it's a right passage or, you know, they're doing their child a disservice by not doing it because they'll never learn to sleep well. Yeah. Yeah, people just need to know that they have options, I think. Yeah, and I kind of, it goes back to just being a bit logical. Like I kind of think, do you think that people are sleep training in like, you know, 50 years ago, 70 years ago? Or when did when did this all start? Yeah, there's in the, you know, you can read books that sort of quote it 300 years ago there were some mention of people sort of you know adjusting sleep behavior but it's really been big for the last sort of 100 years okay with the introduction of parenting books that came out sort of in the late 1800s early 1900s wow and were they doing stuff like you know like (laughs) what was what was sleep training back then 
Well, I think that the earliest examples were of <laughs> books that came out that told you that you had to give your child, if you had to, if you had to give them any affection, give them a pat on the head and tell them that, that they've done a good job for something, try not to give them any affection <laughs> and try not to have a, a relationship with them so that they can be moulded into people without these big emotional sort of attachments to things. Oh, so that, okay. That was the very early kind of ideals around it. Um, and then there was also this perspective that women needed to get back into the workplace or they needed to have the house clean when, you know, the husbands came home and they needed time to do that. They needed to have a baby who slept all through the night so that they could get their housework done. Well, that explains a lot about the previous generations, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, We've come a very long way, I think, in the old sleep and parenting paradigm. And there are still so many principles, I think, left over from books, you know, that were very well-known and well-read. Mm. Uh, and they're still around. They're definitely still around. And a lot of the sleep training principles that are out there today, you know, the pick-up, put-down, spaced soothing, which is the one that you yep. were talking about before, yep. which has lots of different fancy names, you know, controlled crying, time check-in, space soothing. They're all essentially the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Okay. Yeah. So with these progressions, are there, you know, any tips that you could give parents who are currently going through that? How do we support our children and ourselves, you know? Let, mm. Like I think we need to keep coming back to the fact that it's not our child that we need to fix, it's us. We need to get comfortable with the idea that this is a natural physiological process and there's absolutely nothing wrong with what's going on. You know, we're not medical professionals, so there could be some underlying medical issues. So obviously if it's a very consistently unsettled child, obviously go and see your local GP about it. But we're talking about, you know, Regular crying and fussing and, like, frequent waking overnight, that's all really yeah. normal stuff. Yeah, so what, totally what what are your tips normally for families who are going through this? How do we support the baby and, and the parents? Mm. Well, my number one tip is more support, as you said, for the parent mm -hmm. and just making them making sure that they know that it is normal and that there's not something that they need to be fixing immediately. And with these progressions, as I said, normally they're attached to some kind of development. So that could be physical, cognitive, social, emotional. You know, around nine months, there's the separation anxiety that starts to pop its head up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these disruptions to development, the answer is going to be more connection, mm -hmm. more time, more love bombing with your baby, especially with separation anxiety. We don't fix that by removing yourself even further to, for them to get used to being alone. You know, you need to give them more love and more connection and more support. If it's physical development, get them to practice those skills during the day. Bobby, my younger, she has been waking up when she started to roll at three months. She would wake up in the night and she would be rolling before she was awake. She's, it's her body, you know, she's trying to practice. It's so exciting. There are all these new things happening. So lots and lots of practice in the day, lots of physical activity. Is also, is a, it's a great one. Get your partner to step in. So this is circling back to more support for you. Get them to step in and do, you know, more stuff around the house so that you can rest yourself. How many, yep, yeah, no. I was going to say something, but I won't. Just cut that little bit out. <laughs> I won't. Let's not go for the partners. <laughs> I, I would actually, yeah, and, like, I, I love the fact that you say call on your partner and call on your village. Like, get, you know, friends, family, grandparents or whatever to come in and just go, look, I'm having a rough time at the moment. That's can it. you make me a meal or can you take them out That's for a walk or yeah. something like that? But, yeah, it is about supporting yourself through this process as well because yeah. it's hard. It's really it's hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. And, I yeah, and one of my notes was to, you know, get a meal train. Meal trains are not just for when you first have a baby. Yeah. You're not adjusting to being a parent in the first three months. Yeah. You know, it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Yeah. Hit and a trouble patch and exactly, and it's accumulative. Like it's not like <laughs> it's not like you you can give them back for a week and recharge and reset. Like it's just like yeah. it's 
sleep deprivation on top of sleep deprivation on top of sleep deprivation. Like it's not going away anytime soon. I love all of those things because, I, yeah, I love that it's so holistic. I want to touch on night terrors because Ah, this is something that happened to us around kind of about two years old, I'm going to say, and Uh it scared the bejorges out of me because. Oh, they're so scary. They're they're terrifying. Eva is like a very kind of happy, you know, like. baby and like toddler and everything and then all of a sudden she was waking up in the middle of the night as if someone had poured hot oil on her and it was horrific what is going on and again tips tools tactics what can we do to obviously support them through that process totally so I guess knowing what it is to start off with, so it is termed as a sleep disorder mm-hmm. and they do, they wake up screaming, they're inconsolable, they're probably incoherent, they don't respond to you, mm-hmm. no verbal cues, they can be totally disoriented. Yeah. And then they can just stop and then they go back to sleep and it's it's incredible. But, I mean, they can last up to 90 minutes for some people. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, some commonly 20, 30 minutes maybe, yeah. but they can last up to 90 minutes. They're really common for kids between the age of three and seven, but they have been reported in people as young as 18 months and up to 12 years. So there's a huge um, a huge range there of age. Yeah. They reckon that about 30% of kids experience them mm-hmm. and they can tend to run in families. Mm. Yeah. That's, like- that's very interesting because my husband, he doesn't do it as much now, but when we first met... <laughs> like you know broadcasting this to the world he would often wake up he apparently well apparently he used to be a sleepwalker all the time like as a as a kid they found him in like when he was he went camping one time for school and they found him on the main road he'd like walked that far but yeah he (laughs) The one night I distinctly remember this, he thought that there was like a deer in the in the bedroom. <laughs> he like flung out of bed so quickly, and I thought there was a spider or something. Oh my goodness! It it was not funny at the time, but then it was later funny. And I I honestly think that he's passed his lovely genetic information down to our daughter, and she has quite vivid. Just as you were saying, like it's that they're not aware of what's going on and like I've gone in to her room and she's crying and she's like trying to talk to me and I'm like trying to get a sense of what's going on but she's not responding in that kind of conversation you talk Mm. I talk and Mm -hmm. then I like do that whole like looking at her thing I'm like oh my god she's still asleep she is still asleep and then I just have to sit there with her until she like you know lays her head back on the pillow and then yeah, that happens I'd probably say once every once every like two or three months it happens for her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're they're funny. They're they're terrifying for parents. Yeah. I think parents can freak out that they're you know, there's damage being done to their kids. Mm. Um, but most of the time they won't remember it come morning. No. Yes, that's so that's totally right. Because I tried to, I was like, oh my god, we're gonna have to debrief about this. And then I'm like, oh sweetheart, um, you had a bit of a a bad dream last night. And she looks at me as if I'm mad. And I'm like, do you remember that you were crying? No, I wasn't crying. And I was like, okay, (laughs) just like, goodness, what is going on? I'm not, I'm not dreaming this up. Yeah, it's um, it's so scary. And then I think a lot of parents can think that they need to wake their kids up from them, but they're actually super hard to actually rouse them properly from them. Um, and it's recommended that you don't do it because you can cause a lot more panic and fear yes. if they wake up and they're mid freak out. Yeah, and they don't know how they got there, what they're doing. Yes. So the best thing you can do is to keep their body safe and just sort of be there with them um, until they go back to sleep. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's definitely. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say they are often um, related to triggers. So there are things that you can look for that you can work on. So big periods of change, 
can be a trigger, periods of stress or anxiety. If they're in a new environment, yeah. new bedroom, moved state perhaps. Yes. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> um, overtired, chronically overtired. And if they're a little bit older, um, a full bladder as well. So if oh. you are starting to see them, you can take make sure they do a nice big wee before you take them to bed. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know because, yeah, sometimes we get the old, I don't need to go to the toilet. And I'm like, yeah, you do. Trust me. Um, yeah. I saw how much water you were consuming at dinner time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, I will have to say that it it did overlap with things like, Oh, you know, we were in lockdown for two years. So, you know, the stress oh, and anxiety yeah. of the virus oh. and the cough and things like that. That's what we call it, the virus and the cough. And yes, when we moved here to Tassie, we got a few influxes of night terrors again, which obviously totally understandable. She's in a brand new space. Hannah, I want to wrap up with a couple of little rapid fires, if that's okay with you. Questions? Mm. We do this with all of our guests. What is your top tip for birthing mothers? You've done Take it. You've breath. done it twice. <laughs> <laughs> Take a deep breath and trust yourself. Okay. I like I that. think they're my top two tips. And you know, however it happens, if you feel if you feel informed and consulted, you're halfway there. Okay. I love that. Did you have a go-to resource? Like was there, do you have like a book or a workshop or a podcast or something that really kind of prepared you for birth or postpartum or anything like that? Uh, yes, birth. So the Australian Birth Stories podcast, yep. I think everyone yep. probably say that. Yeah, <laughs> God, she's good. I yep. love her guests. They're great. <laughs> but, yeah, that would be my top tip right there for birth. Love it. And our last question, which we ask everyone, what do you keep on your bedside table? Um, There's a lamp on there. There's like a third of a glass of disgusting water that Ted spat some kind of food in that I have to drink. And there's a baby monitor. There we go. I love it. (laughs) Any books that you're reading at the moment that you want to share with us at all or you're just head? I do not have time to read at the moment. I did. (laughs) Your answer should be, I don't read books, I'm writing books because... Um, can we just rewind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you mentioned that you are currently preparing some guides that you're going to be putting up soon. Did you want to talk to us a bit about that? And also where people can yep. find you and the, obviously the offerings that you're providing to people in, I'm assuming, Tassie and... Do you do them online as well? Yeah, I yeah. actually do the majority of mine online, Yeah, which is the handy thing, isn't it, in today's day mm. and age is you can support beautiful mothers and beautiful babies from anywhere in the world. I've had clients from, I think, pretty much every continent at this point. Wow. Um, so that's a beautiful thing, yes. But I do have a weaning guide that has been in the works for quite some time and it is, let's say, in the next month. I'm hoping that it will be available. Yeah. It's just going to be a very comprehensive resource for mums who are wanting to wean off the breast, Mm -hmm. which is such a huge transition. And I started that when I was weaning Ted, my eldest, Mm -hmm. and it's a bit ironic because now, you know, I've just been concentrating on establishing a breastfeeding relationship with my youngest. Yeah. So it has been a bit ironic writing that while (laughs) while I'm doing that. But, yes, that'll take you through, you know, it covers the details on how to do it, different approaches, how to support yourself, emotion, attachment, temperament. It's really, really detailed, so it'll take you right through. And there'll also be a support option to have a one-on-one as well for me to help you through the process if you want a bit more hand-holding than just the guide. Mm, That was so lovely. I still remember game planning that in my head and actually like I still remember our last feed I can tell you the date like Uh oh man and I don't know what like breaks my heart more the fact that it didn't really seem to bother her very much at all and like I just remember you know feeding to sleep putting her in the cot, walking downstairs and just completely losing it. <laughs> just oh, going, yeah. oh, my God, you know, that's it. It's a huge transition and I think until yeah. you're in it and doing it, you, a lot of people don't realise the, the weight of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also I 
after speaking with a friend about it, she was like, just do it really, really slowly because she, I think she was in a position where she had to do it very quickly for some personal reasons and things like Mm. that. And she said the hormonal change was akin to her milk coming in when she first had the baby in that whole, like I'm going to call it, you know, the day three like hormonal roller coaster that you kind of go on. She said it was equivalent to that. And I was like, okay, I don't want to experience that again because that was pretty full on for me. So that sounds really beautiful, Hannah. Oh, that's so lovely. Well, where can we find you? What's your website? Tell us all your social stuff before everyone leaves. Oh, yes. Okay, so website is www.kinpostpartumservices.com. I'm pretty sure I got that right. <laughs> it's only been up for about a week. It's like it's like when someone says, what's your phone number? I don't know. I don't call myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instagram is at kin.postpartum and I do have a Facebook page but it's only been up for oh, a little bit and I don't really give it much attention but it's there and I'm growing it. So please hop over and say hello. Love it. Send me a message. Anyone, any Yes, time. yes. I can definitely attest to the fact that Hannah is a very warm and welcoming person and happy to receive food from weird, strange people like myself. Always, always. <laughs> never send her to food. <laughs> All right, then, darling. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Oh, um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.